This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. I'm Francesca Maxime, joined today with the amazing um, and delightful uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, MD, PhD, a child psychiatrist and neuroscientist, the principal of the Neurosequential Network, senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy and adjunct professor of psychiatry at Northwestern. Um, he also wrote uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog and um, another book um, on empathy. And his latest is What Happened to You, Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing with None Other Than none other than Oprah Winfrey on the New York Times bestseller, uh, Top of the List. Hi, Bruce. Welcome back to Rerooted. It's so good to see you. Hi, Francesca. It's always wonderful to, to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it, it's, it's really delightful. Um, you know, uh, as we were talking sort of leading up to this kind of getting into our, uh, vibe and kind of feeling one another out for the day as, as one does when one is regulating, relating, and then reasoning, you know, we'll get to all the good things that you talk about here. Um, that, you know, when I say delight, that was a, a new word for me that I learned is like, you can have joy, you can be happy, but there's something about being delighted that sort of is a combination of surprise and, and wonder and, and sort of joyfulness and a lightness to it that I don't think we have enough of in this world. So I am truly delighted that you're here joining me in this conversation today. Well, thank you very much. I feel very much the same way. <laughs> well, uh, 
when I see you, I get a big smile on my face. I saw you on, the, on my calendar. I'm like, oh, this will be fun. This will be I fun. Get, I, I'm going to have a good morning. Uh-huh. Good, 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 good. Well, I know that this has been a whirlwind for you, this What Happened to You um, book. I encourage everyone to to buy it, to read it, to take it in, as you do, um, to take it in in parts and pieces if needed, meaning like read a little bit, reflect, kind of digest it as we go, uh, and that kind of thing. And I know you've known Oprah for uh, decades now and helped her with her school in Africa and the girls there and some of the challenges that they were facing and whatnot. But the first thing I maybe want to say about this is, as a journalist, because I actually became a journalist because of Oprah, it was the same trajectory. Um, And my goal is to have a mindful talk show, which I'm kind of doing with this podcast. But for whatever it's worth, you want to put a bug in your ear. (laughs) I'm I'm available. But, um, But that... The reason why I became a journalist at the time was because the question that I had always asked myself that I was never able to answer is, why do people do what they do? And so I became a journalist to answer that question. And in a way, you're, you're asking the same question in this, I feel, which is what happened to you. So talk to me a little bit about why we're moving from um, a framework around behavior to understanding the history. Well, it's, it, it, for those of you who are listening who know much about the the, the trauma world, you, you probably know that that term originated out of Sandy Bloom's clinical work group um, many, many years ago. And Sandy Bloom is a pioneer in our field um, and has done some wonderful work trying to help all of us better understand the systemic aspects of how um, trauma impacts the way organizations work. And and if you don't address that, it doesn't matter if you have really good individual clinical practice put in place in your clinic, you need to understand the people on the board and people that are your supervisors and people that are your clinical consultants need to have the same understanding and level of respect for you that you are attempting to have with your clients. So she's done some great work. Bottom line is they were having a a what we call like a clinical staffing where you sit around and talk about a client and everybody puts their two cents in and one of the members of their team um, basically came out and said, you know, it's almost as if in our work, we've changed uh, the, the major question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And this was really an acknowledgement of and an awareness that they were moving to a more developmental perspective in their clinical work. They were recognizing that if a child is aggressive, impulsive, has trouble with relationships right now, that that came from somewhere. It just didn't pop up from nowhere. And this is something that is really sort of at the primary ethic of, I think, good trauma and developmentally informed work, that there's a recognition that all human behavior has antecedents. And if you don't understand the antecedents, you don't understand where this comes from, you'll always be making um, sometimes educated guesses, but a lot of times really bad guesses about where the behavior, where the emotional problems, where the struggles are coming from. And um, so that's kind of that, you know, the irony is, <laughs> and I have to laugh about this because I've been talking to Oprah for 30 years about this, <laughs> 30 years. Long time. And I think more than anything that this shows what a bad teacher I am, because <laughs> it, it wasn't until about three years ago when I mentioned that shift in question 
during a 60 minutes interview, she said, oh, now I get it. I'm like, Oprah. She had her aha moment. She's talking about this for years. But that sort of simple reframing uh, helped her connect with a lot of the stuff I've been talking about for a long time. And that's why she wanted that to be the title of the book. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. And it's been so healing. And I know there are so many other podcasts and interviews and things that you've done in uh, terms of promoting the book. And so I don't want to dwell too much on the book per se. Um, Although I it's I highly encourage everyone to read it and buy it and share it and maybe join a book club about it or create one and um, look up the neurosequential model and the Child Trauma Academy, certainly, and um, find some of the trainings that you offer. Because I think you know, from from my perspective as a somatic psychotherapist and a mindfulness student and 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 teacher, um, and someone who comes from uh, an interracial, you know, multi ethnic, you know, background, one of the things the last time we spoke last summer about was um, as it was the summer of the uprising and it preceded the uh, the election here in the United States. Um, and things like that. There was just so much social uh, sort of turmoil and 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 so much that had kind of come to a head. And that too has antecedents. And and I feel like all of this history, you know, it's connected to our individual and our collective nervous systems. And so I'd like to kind of continue to have the conversation both on a personal and individual level and also on sort of maybe this broader, you know, spectrum level in terms of where are we at and how do we exist in space and time and, and, and as a collective. Because the one message that you say here loud and clear again and again is love and relationship is what's healing. And we live in a world, I think, sometimes where we're just um, reinforcing uh, separation. Absolutely. You know, what you mentioned earlier, and we and we talked about this a little bit prior to starting the recording, is that the the very same question or the very same developmental approach in clinical work is conceptually comparable to a, a real historical perspective and where a people are. Right, you know, what's the heritage of these of the people you are working with, of your of yourself, of your own family? And if you're not aware of that, you just kind of get swept up into the inertia of doing what you've always done. And what that means is that <clears throat> if 500 years ago uh, some structure like public education or education was started <clears throat> by um, white males and it was only given to white male uh, children who were wealthy. And then little by little from that that, that original concept of education, that it was only modified with tiny little tweaks. Well, we'll add a few other people, but they're male and they have to have some money. They have to own land. They, They don't have to be really rich, but they have to own land. And then we'll add a few other people. And a few other people. And if, if every few hundred years, every few generations, we make these tiny little tweaks, you haven't really changed education. All, all you've done is maintained the existing power structure and you've just redecorated it. You have the same house. It's, it's just got different furniture. And so when people talk about systemic racism or they talk about systemic misogyny, uh, you talk, there's, both of those exist in our current public education system. 
And, you know, if you don't, if you get so defensive that you don't see that clearly, you'll end up um, missing a tremendous opportunity to make meaningful change in those systems. Mm. Right now, I think the whole initiative, whole effort to change public education, for example, is just completely misguided because it's just tweaking the edges of that old house that has the same dominance hierarchy, the same structures, the same process of not including the community in, in deciding what should be part of our curricula, all kinds of stuff. It's just very um, much tied to the old models. And you can say the same thing about just about every other system we have in our society. They have their origins in uh, from something that had started, you know, hundreds of years ago. I mean, the university system is actually probably the best example mm. of a, you know, white male dominated power hierarchy. And, um, you know, you saw an example of it with uh, recently at University of North Carolina. Yeah. You know, um, anyway, I can go. I'm sorry. No, not at all. I mean, what I think what you're pointing to is. I think when people start to, and, and I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll go micro, macro and mezzo, um, you know, we'll sort of, uh, the, the clinical sort of personal nervous system regulation, brain science, neuroscience, limbic system, neural synaptic, you know, firings and unlockings. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that, but then how does that affect the collective and what kind of culture to use what Resma Menicum talks a lot about another somatic psychotherapist and, uh, talks about somatic abolitionism, you know, which I think is a great term, um, that uh, wrote a book called, I also encourage my listeners and viewers to watch, uh, called My Grandmother's Hands to Read, um, that, that there's really sort of a, a sense of how this impacts the, the collective. So what you're talking about, I think, is how do we transform culture? How do we begin to transform ourselves? I think, I like to use the term from the inside out. How do we turn the eyes inside and be able to turn from the inside out? And how do we recognize the things like the power dynamics that are at play in the systems and structures that you're talking about when you actually look at history, like the university system or any of the institutions and, and systems and, uh, you know, whatever? How do, we, how do we look at those in terms of their, their foundings, uh, how they were founded, what they got rid of, by the way, also? right? The intuitive wisdom and the indigenous wisdom that they said was not acceptable, that, you know, we're just learning about all of these children that were just, you know, buried in residential schools in, uh, you know, Canada and, and, and whatnot, um, and the genocide that, you know, that has taken place in order to indoctrinate, um, you know, children away from their intuitive indigenous ways, which really is what what brings us back to the healing and part, and, and that's what you're talking about in this book. So so maybe we should walk it back and start to talk about the very basic thing of, and you started this last year when we were talking in the other Rerooted podcast, who are the people that became the colonizers? What does that mean? And, and I mean it from a clinical perspective, the trauma that, um, to use the term, the white man carries in its origins from that, that was kind of brought forward that resulted in this power dynamic uh, that, you know, of oppression and subjugation and, and sort of hoarding, for lack of a better word. Well, it's... <clears throat> If you look at sort of the, the colonization in the United States, um, 
part of what happened was the, the, the majority of the white males that came over here were at the bottom of their power differential in, in Europe. They were the second sons who didn't own property over there, who would not inherit, um, you know, any, any wealth from the, their parents. And again, if you look sort of at the, at the heritage of that, that goes back to the Middle Ages where the people who lived on your land, if you, were, if you owned this land, you owned the people. Um, and just the, the carry forward of, of all of this stuff resulted in a lot of marginalized um, individuals that were at the middle and then at the bottom of a power differential. And, and then the people who were um, disenfranchised, disempowered, uh, frequently would find people that they were more dominant than that they would just turn around and dump on. And, you know, everybody hears the term, you know, S flows downhill. That's basically what happens is that, that the oppression flows down. And it's an unfortunate characteristic of the human species that we tend to cluster and create an us and them. And so it is always in the consolidation of power for yourself, it's always in your interest to have an an external marginalized people to uh, basically coalesce your power. People will, you know, it's, it's been, you know, through time of immemorial, that's the, that's the model of gaining power is marginalizing others. Mm. And that, that brings people to you. You organize them around some hateful view or belief, uh, and you feed that to whatever degree you need to um, by identifying, oh, this person uh, raped one of our women, so let's lynch them. Or, or this person... Um, you know, we can declare them a religious heretic and then we can literally drive them out. We can seize their land and we be- can become wealthy. I mean, this is what happened with the the Pope and King, and King Philip in France decided to make the very, very wealthy Templars heretics. Mm. So they could kill them and seize all of their wealth. Right. This has happened all through history. If you know history, you know that this dynamic of, um, creating the other. And it's very easy to create the other for very con- concrete people if the other has a different skin color. Right. It's a lot harder if the other has a different belief because you can hide your beliefs. You can't hide your skin color. So the con- most convenient group of people always that you can marginalize to get more power is people who don't look like you who don't talk like you, who don't dress like you. So there's some externally visible characteristic that you can exploit to consolidate power. And it happens all the time. I mean, it's, 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 happens, it's happening, you know, as we speak. That's right. Um, I so appreciate your contextualizing this historically and also, you know, to talk about the nervous system of people. I mean, we talk about, um, you know, Rick Hansen talks a lot about this, the evolutionary negativity bias, the evolutionary negativity bias um, that, uh, you know, that we sort of tend to have based on our survival kind of instincts. And then they also talk about like a glitch in humans, if you will, around that to a certain extent. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. I see you kind of smiling. What do you, do you get what I'm saying? 
Yeah, I do. Uh, so can you kind of maybe riff off of that? Well, you know, the, the there's a part of our brain that is, it, it, I kind of talk about it as this double-edged sword, that human beings are neurobiologically um, organized so that we are drawn to people and we want to be connected to people. We want to belong. And historically, that group of people that you belong to, that you sort of built internally created memories and attributes of the, those people were people you grew up with, people who were in your clan, your tribe. Um, and then historically, when you met somebody who had attributes that were different from you, your default tendency was to activate your stress response. And that, you know, again, we, we, we talk about this in the book and, you know, I've talked about this before is that if you envision the brain as this upside down triangle and the top is the cortex, which is where you do all of your complex uh, abstract thinking and good problem solving is all executive functioning, executive functioning. Exactly. And, this part of the brain, though, is exquisitely sensitive to stress. So even minor stressors like getting hungry or being sleep deprived, you'll start to shut down your cortex. And I think everybody who's listening can think about a time when they were like worn out and tired and sleep deprived. And then they, you know, they snapped at somebody and or they said something that was stupid that they wish they wouldn't have said earlier. But this that part of the brain is very very sensitive to stress. If you couple that with the fact that your brain is a very defensive organ, it's 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 primary intention is I mean there's really kind of three things is that that we sort of talk about the prime mandate is the prime directive of the, of the brain is one to keep you alive. Um, the other one is to help you procreate. And then the third one is to protect the dependents in your clan. Mm. So there's these three things and they're all neurobiologically interrelated, but you're exquisitely sensitive to any cues that suggest that you're under threat. Um, and historically the major predator of human beings has always been other human beings. Right. So when you meet people who are not like you or, or have attributes that you're, that are unfamiliar to you, the default response is to shut down, is to activate your stress response, which will shut down part of your cortex. Mm. So instead of becoming more abstract and inclusive and thoughtful and, and reflecting on the past or anticipating the future, you become more concrete. You become more categorical. You become much more vulnerable to very simple linear explanations like, those people are bad or they're subhuman or they're not good because they do A, B, and C. And if there is somebody who wants to exploit that, then there's a hateful belief that gets coupled to that default physiology. And, um, and this is kind of what makes human beings exquisitely vulnerable to being polarized into an us and them. And this happens within organizations, you know, it'll be the frontline workers or so those people in administration right. or those people in IT. It happens in professional organizations. It'll be, oh, those CBT people, they don't understand the body. And <laughs> all those people, they don't understand CBT. 
you know, they don't they don't believe in evidence, you know, whatever. You know, there's just weird polarization things that happen that are all kind of inaccurate when you sort of boil them down. But it can get to the point where these people will not even sit down with each other and listen to each other. And when that happens, then you start to get more fragmentation, more polarization, and mythology builds up around those people. And um, the other. Yeah, yeah, the other can lead to generations of separation. And that, that's happened in the U.S. around race. It's happened in the U.S. around, uh, you know, it's happened all over the world around women. Um, you know, so I, I keep going on. I'm sorry. No. I keep, I keep going off on tangents. I'm sorry. No, not at all. I asked you basically about, no, it's beautiful what you're sharing because I think you're contextualizing some of what's happening at a larger level in terms of the brain science behind it. You're a neuroscience and a psychiatrist and you work, you know, on the developing child's brain, you've studied it for decades, you know about the way in which, you know, this is an inside out job. And also, you know, you've looked at the history and you've studied all of that to be able to contextualize this isn't anything new. Um, and what I had pointed to was our evolutionary negativity bias. I mean, if you look at, I'm also a couples therapist. So when you look at um, John Gottman and all of his research, or the Gottmans, he and his wife, you know, they're looking at uh, the way in which, you know, you do, I think the ratio is what, five to one or 10 to one of positive to negative compliments that you're supposed to give. And in my model with Terry Real on relational life therapy, we talk about cherishing, mutual cherishing, and living relationally as living as the we. And, um, you know, Dan Siegel talks about the we, the me and the we, you know. So we're all pointing to the same thing about how is it that I can get triggered in my brain, my, 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 my cortex can go offline, we flip our lid, so to speak. And then using the mindfulness piece, which is just sort of one model of doing this. There's a million ways you can do it that you pause so that you can get back into your regulation of your nervous system and that your brain can basically calm down and you can find yourself again. When you say, you know, you lost your mind. Yeah, you did. (laughs) See, you know, it's interesting, Francesca, we were talking earlier about sort of the Maori way that I was writing about, but same similar elements I've seen in so many other indigenous groups. And the, the thing that's so fascinating about that is that related to what you're talking about is that when, when any individual or group of people are, are sort of cortically partially shut down, their decision-making will be much more concrete, won't be very abstract. It's not going to, it won't be as good as it will be when people feel regulated. And so all of the decision-making and conversation around charged content always happens in community in the midst of regulating activities, drumming, dancing, communal meals. Nobody's hungry. People are there connected with their people. Mm. Uh, We have ceremonial ritual stuff that's predictable. We know what to expect and we get better regulated and then we talk about it. And, And which is so different than in the, you know, you think about, Rituals. Dialogue in on the news. You know, they're supposed to have two people that are supposed to be debating. You have six minutes to talk about one of the most important issues on the planet and each side. And they really, honestly, if they begin to have meaningful dialogue, I've been involved in these where the, the moderator tried to like prod us like a, like in a bullfight. I know. So they don't want you to, they don't want you to have dialogue. They want, they want the, the mess. 
Uh, so. Trust me, as a former news anchor, I know I was one of those people who was doing the prodding because that was being what was directed. But I know because that's what sells. And so I think that that's the whole point about this is, you know, I'm just going to name it is that we live because of. OK, so we've talked about the fact that it was the subjugated, you know, to use Dr. Kenneth Hardy's terms, who's a wonderful psychologist, black psychologist who talks about just had the soul work conference runs the Eichenberg Academy. People are encouraged to go look at that if you want to study these dynamics. But his terms are the privileged and the subjugated. So you had the privileged in Europe that had the subjugated second sons that had no inheritance, that then wanted to lord, lord over those who had even less than they did, that brought those practices here to the United States and went forth in the world through the doctrine of discovery, through manifest destiny, through all of these sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, land grabs and, and everything, enslavement and, and genocide, and then decided that they were going to be entitled and set up institutions that, well, now I get mine. This is my, this is my opportunity, essentially. Right. And that, Right. And, and, and that this is this lives in the nervous system of our inheritance as a country, but as our inheritance as, as individuals, and that it then gets borne out in the institutional policies that you're talking about when it comes to universities and academics and whatnot. So where do we begin in terms of naming this? Sorry. No, 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 no. I, I, and I jumped on you. I didn't mean to do it. No, but I, it's. The thing that's so important to know here is exactly, it's, I'm just going to rephrase what you just said. If you are in, uh, if you're a child growing up in a system like that with parents and neighbors and schools that have the, those same beliefs and that's all sort of uh, uh, surrounds you, you literally grow up, like you said, with a neurobiological set of systems and biases that fit perfectly back into that and perpetuate that structure and that system. So you grow up it, 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 believing that you have certain, that certain things are your right. And, and a lot of the rights you have as an American citizen is the right to go out into the woods with a gun and kill an animal if you want to. And it's, oh, we've been hunting for years. It's, it's part of my cultural heritage, whatever. And that's so different than if you grow up. The predominant ethic, if you're a Cree, young Cree boy growing up in Northern Canada, is not that you have a right to take from the land. You have an obligation to care for the land. That's right. You have an obligation. You know, it's not like it's your right. Like it belongs to you. It's like. I am a caregiver, you know, I need to protect the land. I need to only take what, um, you know, what I need. And it's it's a whole different sort of worldview. And I think, Francesca, the part of what's going to have to happen is that there are a lot of really smart, bright, caring people in our country, but I think that they, we've got blind spots. Yeah. And I do think that the first step in this sort of inside-out transformation is being able to clearly articulate some of these things in a way that doesn't feel so defensive, mm. doesn't elicit a defensive response. And honestly, that's kind of what we were trying to do in this book. I mean, we, we, we know that we touched on a lot of things that were highly, I mean, I use some of the responses on, on Amazon. You can tell that I touched a few rough. You know, touched a nerve. Yeah. Um, but we were trying to present these, a lot of complicated concepts in ways that were, uh, 
not going to be so escalating. We're not going to be make people get all defensive and help them learn a little bit about a few of these things that we think are like little baby steps in the right direction. I think that that awareness is is part of the the primary process that will lead to change. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.